we've gathered here on this Pentecost day. We're going to be looking at the fact that it says in Scripture, in, in the book of Acts, in the second chapter, all of those disciples that were there that day, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we refer to that as the birth of the church. Jesus had promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In fact, uh, in the book of Acts and the first chapter, we see him say in the uh, eighth chapter of the first, um, the eighth verse of the first chapter, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world. He told them to go and tarry into, in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. And also, he uh, told them that he had told them in the upper room shortly before he went to the cross and that last time he was together that he was going to send them the Holy Spirit. Some people look on it, there's a place where he takes them and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. And some people think that, well, that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on and he says, it is expedient that I go away. You may be sad about it now that I say I'm going away, but it's expedient that I go away because if I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. And he will be closer to you than I am. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's promising to come to believers through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you read all through John 14 through 16, he elaborates on what the Holy Spirit will do in a believer's life. And then we see here on the day of Pentecost that uh, whenever uh, Peter begins his speech, or not his speech, his sermon, he says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. He talked about, I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Well, amazingly, if there's one denomination that should really know about the Holy Spirit, it should be the United Methodist Church. And yet, I went to their website this morning and uh, looked at what they said about the Holy Spirit. And basically, you could kind of summarize it in saying, you know, we know 
who it's easy for us to talk about God because we can uh, look on him as a father and we can relate to that. And we look at Jesus and he became one of us. He, was, he became a human being. And we can tell you all about Jesus. We can tell you about God the Father. And basically what they say after that is, but we don't know much about the Holy Spirit at all. That's, that's just a summary of it. And that's on our official website. The one church that should know more about the Holy Spirit than any other doesn't seem to know much about it at all. And yet we claim things that come from the presence of the Holy Spirit being in our lives. One of John Wesley's big things was that the Christian faith should not be just head knowledge. That should be experiential. It should be something that uh, gives us that his, when the Holy Spirit sheds his love abroad in our hearts, we should have an assurance of salvation. And that was so important to John Wesley because he had spent his whole adult life up to a certain point being an Anglican priest and all of a sudden realizing that he was a what he called a fair summer day Christian. That he was one that when things were going well, he thought that he was okay with God. But when things got bad, he would have these doubts. And he would wonder, what if there is no gospel? What if there really isn't a God? And he would have these doubts. And they would just kill him. And then he would do good works. And he would pray and he'd read the Bible and do all this stuff. And... And he started feeling better about himself and move on. But then he ran, he was going across the ocean with a group, there were a group of Germans, Moravians on the boat with him. And uh, he saw that they had a depth of faith and assurance that they were gods. That he did not have, even though he had done all these good works all his life. And it troubled him. And then we went, they went through this horrible storm where he found himself cringing in the hold of the ship, scared to die. And then he decided he'd go visit the Germans. And he went, and they were reading their Bibles. They were singing hymns, having a worship service, basically. When all of a sudden, a huge wave just went over the boat that was over the ship that was so strong that it broke the mast off the ship, snapped the mast off the ship. And these people just kept on singing. And he asked, the, he asked one of them, didn't you get scared when that happened? And he said, Glory be to God, no. That just killed John Wesley. And that's why he wrote in his journal whenever he was heading back after failing in ministry in the colonies. And he was going back, he wrote in his journal, I went to the colonies to save the Indians. Now who will save me? But he knew where to look 
and he ran across some Moravians there in England and they began to encourage him and try to explain to him what was missing from his life. And it was on the night of Aldersgate that we read about earlier that he felt all of a sudden his heart was strangely warmed. They did trust in Christ and Christ alone for his salvation. And all of a sudden, he was a different person. All of a sudden, he had power from on high. All of a sudden, his preaching uh, was fiery and made a difference in people's lives, except for those people that didn't want God in their lives. And because of that, he made church folk very uncomfortable, and they wound up barring him from being able to preach in uh, churches anymore. So he just said, well, the world is my parish. And he went and he'd stand on soapboxes, tombstones, whatever else he could find. And he would preach and people would gather. And the Methodist church formed. What happened on Aldersgate night was John Wesley was filled with the Holy Spirit. Up until that point, he had been a religious and he thought that he had a faith in God. But you see, the Holy Spirit seals our faith in God to where there is no doubt. And whenever we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we step from a hope-so religion to a no-so relationship. And nothing can take that away from you. I was so humbled being there in the Roman Colosseum a couple of weeks ago when so knowing so many thousands of Christians marched into that arena singing hymns and encouraging one another and facing horrible forms of death and yet doing so knowing that they were just on their way to heaven and glorified God with their deaths. It's because of the way that they died that it says that the blood of the martyrs is what fertilized the ground for the Christian faith and caused it to grow. It was humbling. But you see, those people, they couldn't have done that if the Holy Spirit had not given them an assurance of whose they were and who was with them, even at that time. And the thing is, what we see happening in the book of Acts and then in the New Testament has not changed. The church has drifted away from the truth. And so, I want to talk to you about that this morning. You know, I read a story a while, well, it was yesterday, about a small East Coast community that was struggling financially. And so they called uh, an open town meeting to discuss uh, the problem they were facing. And a dozen or so people were there. And there was also a stranger there that, no one seemed to know. And most assumed 
that he was a tourist who had just dropped in on the meeting. And he started to make a comment when the various ideas were being offered. But he was interrupted and so he just kept quiet for the rest of the meeting. And he ended up leaving early. Just as he was leaving, a late arriving resident came in and asked with excitement, what was he doing here? Is, is, is he going to help us? And the other said, who are you talking about? Who was that man? And the latecomer replied, you mean you don't know? That was John D. Rockefeller. His yacht is in our harbor. Didn't you get his help? Now, John D. Rockefeller happened to be one of the richest men in the world at the time. And someone cried out in despair. No, we didn't get his help because we didn't know who he was. Amazingly, Jesus, when he's promising the Holy Spirit, calls the Holy Spirit the helper, the helper. He has sent his Holy Spirit to help us. And yet I'm afraid that many of us, just like uh, that community uh, and the people in that community, with John D. Rockefeller right there speaking up, ready to help apparently, them just ignoring him and going on trying to handle the problem on their own. They had someone there who had all the resources that they needed and yet they wouldn't even let him speak. I'm afraid that that's where we've come in the church in America today among the mainline denominations. The Holy Spirit longs to speak. The Holy Spirit longs to move. And yet we're so tied up in our own middle frame that we don't even pause to listen. And we have to actually twist scripture to avoid what it says about the Holy Spirit, even as we read it. So there's two questions that I, I want to uh, uh, just address today. One is, what does it mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? And then, how do we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because you see, every great revival has involved the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on people who were willing to receive it. Our country needs a great revival. It's only going to come as we open our eyes to who the Holy Spirit is and allow Him to do His work. So first of all, what, is, what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit. You know, the first experience of the Christian life is salvation. And this is the incoming of the Holy Spirit. But, and through that, Jesus Christ gives us new life. 
God's life, eternal life. I was fortunate enough to stand in the middle of the Sistine Chapel a couple of weeks ago. And there just above me was Michelangelo's famous painting where God has created Adam and is reaching down and touching Adam and imparting to him true life. Apart from that, Adam would have been just another animal. And so that is why God could tell him and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They ate from that tree and they died as far as their relationship to God went. No longer this was his spirit with them. No longer were they spiritually alive. They hid from him. They were separated from him because they had experienced spiritual death. And until we are quickened by God's uh, Holy Spirit at the point of salvation, we are dead spiritually. And the whole point of salvation is to bring us to new life in Christ. It says that those who received him, to them he gave the power or the right to become children of God. We're not his children until we've come to him through Jesus Christ our Lord and received what he did on the cross for our sins and then receive the new life that he offers. That's the first part of salvation. That's the first part. There's another part though, that, and I don't think that, and this is just it, it's like our conversion isn't complete until we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is the second, the second part, and this is the experiential part or the concluding of the experiential part and that is the receiving or making welcome the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can cause the Holy Spirit to pour out his new life uh, into our spirits and to baptize our souls and bodies and then the world around us with his refreshing and renewing power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I'm afraid that there are a lot of people that have pretty well just decided that there's only one experience or one part, and that is just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's true. But then it goes on. More, the whole, receiving the Holy Spirit should be part and parcel to that. And we see this in the New Testament. First of all, we see the first thing we must do is believe. Peter at Cornelius' house, we saw that. They believed as they heard the gospel. And when they believed what, Jesus, well, I mean, what uh, Peter was saying about Jesus... 
and they received what he was saving about Jesus, then the Holy Spirit came upon them in such a way that it was obvious. said that they received the Holy Spirit in the same way that the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And because that was so clear, Peter said, Who are we to withhold water from these who received the Spirit in the same way that we did? Now then, so you see, and here we see the giving of the Holy Spirit preceding their baptism. And so we see some people nowadays want to equate baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit is at work in baptism, but that's not receiving the Holy Spirit. That's not being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a work that's done in our hearts, but that's not the receiving the Holy Spirit. So, uh, that, so these people, they believed, and then they received, and then they were baptized. Later on, we will see uh, one of the disciples go to Samaria, and he preached to the Samaritans, and the Samaritans received the gospel gladly. And they were being baptized, and they were rejoicing. But there was something wrong. And it troubled the disciples that had been sharing the gospel, and all these people were being saved. It troubled them because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And that bothered them. So they sent for Peter. And Peter and some more of the apostles came and they laid hands on these new converts and they received the Holy Spirit. And so we see that baptism there was not the same. There was a distinction between being baptized with water and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're not the same thing. They should happen close, but there's a difference. Later on, Paul winds up running across some uh, uh, disciples who something bothered him about these disciples. They seem to know Jesus, know about Jesus, but there was something missing from their lives. And because of that, he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, just like a lot of Methodists would today, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? And so he explained, so he said, well, in what baptism were you baptized? And they said, the baptism of John. And so Paul had to explain to them that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was a baptism of works. But he said that John pointed to Jesus and he said, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so they were baptized in the name of Jesus, trusted in Him instead of their own works, and all of a sudden, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Again, being good isn't salvation. Repenting and being baptized isn't salvation. And the, 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 it's, it's actually the re believing that what Jesus did on the cross for your sins is sufficient to bring about the total forgiveness of your sins. That everything that God is holding against you, Jesus paid the price for it so that there's no barrier between you and him. Once you receive personally what he did for you on the cross. And once you do that and you truly have faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes because you're welcoming him in at that time. But it is an experiential reality. And when you read the New Testament, honestly, you can't help but see that there's this big difference between what a lot of Christian uh, people uh, say uh, the Christian experience should be. When we read about it in the New Testament, it shows that receiving the Holy Spirit was a fact of experience. And for many Christians today, is a fact of doctrine. It's just something that we say we believe. But it's had no effect on our lives whatsoever. In some churches, the gift of the Holy Spirit is equated with baptism. In Protestant evangelicalism, it's even weirder because uh, it's equated with some subconscious work of God in regeneration or in being born again, which uh, you only know you have it because the Bible says that you do if you believe. Now, I've actually heard new converts be told, in effect, don't expect to notice any difference. Just believe you've received the Holy Spirit. But that is far from what we see in the New Testament. And the promise of the Father received by those first believers on the day of Pentecost is just as available to us today as it was for them. Folks, the experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is just as real now as it was back then on the day of Pentecost. You know when it's happened to you. You know when it's happened. And this is why Paul could ask those, those confused disciples that he met there were the disciples of John, but did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what would a contemporary Protestant say in response to that question? I think we'd say something like, uh, I thought we automatically received the Holy Spirit when we believed. I don't understand how you can even ask the question. How could Paul ask that question? He could ask it, I think, because receiving the Holy Spirit is a real experience and you know when it's happened. How many of you have ever hit your thumb with a hammer? Let's see your hands. You knew it happened. You experienced it. You knew it happened. 
It's the same way with receiving the Holy Spirit. You know it has happened because it makes a tremendous difference in the very depth of your being and you will never be the same again once it has happened to you. There are marks of it in your life. And the best way that Paul had to test the faith of those so-called disciples was to ask them about their experience of the Spirit. Now, there's, this is no different than what Paul said in Romans 8.14 when he said, All who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Now, I agree with John Piper when he says, I sometimes fear we have so redefined conversion in terms of human decisions and have so removed any necessity of the experience of God's Spirit that many people think they are saved when in fact they only have Christian ideas in their head and not spiritual power in their hearts. I agree with him wholeheartedly on that. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is a real life-changing experience. Christianity is not just a collection of glorious ideas. It's not merely the performance of rituals and sacrifices. It is not just doing good in the name of the church or in the name of Jesus. Doing that without being filled with the Spirit and without really being the Lord's is a dangerous thing to do. We see that in Acts whenever Paul uh, was uh, uh, just tremendous things were happening around Paul. And so uh, he, uh, uh, and he was healing people in the name of Jesus and wonderful things were happening. So it says in the book of Acts that seven sons of Siva, S-C-E-V-A, who were uh, Jewish exorcists, commanded a spirit to come out of this person in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the spirit in this that was possessing this man said, I know Jesus and I know who Paul is, but who are you? And he just jumped all over them and apparently beat the tar out of them and tore all their clothes off of them. So they run out bleeding and naked. So doing things in Jesus' name without having the Spirit of God shed abroad in your heart can be a dangerous thing and it can backfire. So let's make sure that we examine ourselves and make sure that we are his before we go around representing him. Now, two marks of having the Holy Spirit at work within us, having received it. First is a heart of praise. It's a heart in which the Holy Spirit has been poured out and it will stop. Whenever you have the Holy Spirit poured out within your hearts, you're going to stop magnifying yourself and start magnifying God. That is one of the, uh, that's, that's part of the litmus test of whether you are the Lord's or not. It's part of whether you uh, have been filled with the Holy Spirit or not. Are you 
glorifying God? Is He the number one thing in your life? Or do you seek your own glory and your own agendas? Number two is obedience. Another mark is obedience. Peter and the apostles told the Sadducees when they had arrested them, we must obey God rather than men. And in verse 32 says, we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God gave to those who are obeying him. Gave was past tense. Obey is present and ongoing in that scripture. It's inevitable that when the object of your heart's worship changes from self-centeredness to being connected with God and open and having faith in Him, your worship changes, your obedience is going to change. When Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit and infuses you with a new sense of the glory of God, you have a new desire and a new power to obey. And whether or not you speak in tongues, these two things will be there in your lives. Obedience and a heart that wants to glorify and magnify God. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Quickly, first of all, you must really believe what Jesus did on the cross for you. You must receive that personally for the forgiveness of your sins. And you must have faith that he has the best possible life in store for you. Much better than the track that you've been on up to that point. And you must give your life to him. Receive what he has done for you and give your, the reins of your life over to him. From this point on, you live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And saying Jesus is Lord is no longer just saying a slogan. Saying Jesus is Lord is a testimony of your life. That's the difference. That's the difference. And whenever you have true faith in God through Jesus Christ and receive the only way that you can come to him, which is through what Jesus did on the cross, when you, and then you open your life to him, you can expect the Holy Spirit to come in. The word of God must be heard and you must be called. You must be called. It says as many as he shall call to himself. And the thing is, he's called you. Some of you have answered that call. And I believe some of you were filled with the Holy Spirit when you responded to that call. But I also believe that some of you didn't know what that really meant. He didn't understand the person of the Holy Spirit. And you had a wonderful personal experience with the Lord. And He filled your heart with love. I've run across two Iranian couples. One couple sat in my office. They have converted from Islam. 
And they are just amazed at the love of God through Jesus Christ. They're just amazed. They're willing, they were willing to, to give up everything for that love. That's why in the United States it's, it's illegal to convert to Christianity in Iran. And so they left their family and their family has disowned them. But they have, what did they say, Sharon? What? Calm. A calm. They don't even know the, the word peace. They have a calm in their hearts because Jesus has shed abroad his love in their hearts. Some of you have experienced that. You have known that. But because you didn't know that it was the presence of the Holy Spirit and that he wanted to be with you, you've drifted away. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And he doesn't stay where he's not wanted and where he's not welcome. And if you choose sin over that prompting of your heart for him, after a while, he'll just say, okay. And like John D. Rockefeller left that community meeting that night because they wouldn't listen to him and he wouldn't, they didn't even want his help. That's what the Holy Spirit has done to you. But you know what? You can call him back. I think this is what the story of the prodigal son is all about. The prodigal son knew what it was like to be in the presence of the father. But then he went away and he did his own thing. But when he came back, the father ran and embraced him. And so it is with you. If you've drifted away, you knew that warmth and that love at one point, you take a step toward him, he'll run to you. He wants to be involved in your heart and in your life. And he's calling to you this morning. Don't just come home. Let me come in. Let me come in. I want to fellowship with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.